All right, top of the page, the literal factor. Rule number 10. Holy smokes, we're two-thirds of the way done with this. The literal, well, after today we will be. The literal factor. The rule states this, and it's very, very simple. Always take a passage literally unless it is clear in the passage that you are dealing with symbolism. I did have an idea for a funny skit that we could film, but I just ran out of time to get together with some of you guys to film it. But uh, there's this video I saw on YouTube of uh, a guy who's a cousin, and he, the cousin takes everything literally. So when everyone says, you know, take a seat, he grabs a seat, actually, like, and holds it. And if anyone, you know, says, you know, dude, chill out, because he was taking everything literally, he'd be like, you calling me physically hot? And the other guy would be like, I mean, you're handsome, but no. So it was just really, it was kind of a funny video. I thought it'd be cool to recreate it, do some of our own jokes, make it a little bit funnier, but just ran out of time. But literally, <laughs> literally, no pun intended, take a passage literally unless it is clear the passage that you're dealing with is symbolism. And really, the, the idea of that is, again, very, very simple. And if you're taking notes, write this down. We can't ever forget the fact that God wrote truth to reveal it, not to hide it. He's in the business of making truth plain. One of the greatest books in all of the Bible that reveals the glory of Jesus Christ in all of His power, in all of His majesty, is the book of Revelation. Even in the title itself, it says reveal. That's where the root word of revelation. He's in the business of making truth plain, and yet that is one of the most misunderstood and misapplicable books in all of Christianity today because so many people take it as symbolism. And that's not the case. And not only do they do that with that book, but many in Christianity today take the entire Bible and say that, uh, by and large, most of it is symbolic. By and large, most of it is metaphorical. And that's not how God wrote the Bible. He didn't write it in some allegorical type of a way where everything is a picture, where everything represents something else. No, the Bible is to be taken literally unless otherwise demonstrated. We'll see that today. Uh, we're not going to look at those passages. You can check those passages out later. But really, the summary of it is found on the, under the important concepts at the bottom of page 26. And here's the summary of those verses. God is a communicator. And this pattern is clearly seen in the scriptures beginning in Genesis chapter 1. He spoke creation into existence and gave testimony of the truth through his created works. Romans 1, 19-20. He wrote the law of God on each person's heart, endued the internal witness of the conscience to each person. Romans chapter 2, 14-15. He sent prophets to speak his words to people, manifested Jesus Christ on the earth through his words and works, that's Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. And penned or preserved, or did both, penned and preserved, the scriptures through mankind without corruption. That's 2 Peter 1, 16 and verse 19 to 21. Anyone that says that God is not a communicator and a revealer of truth is willfully ignorant. This is absolutely huge. The Bible is not hard to understand. You've heard this since you were very, very little. You hear it all the time in main service. The Bible really is not hard to understand. There may be some passages that are tough, hence this class. But by and large, it's not difficult to understand. It's hard to do what it says. It's hard to obey the very clear passages that we come across when it goes against and contrary to our flesh and what we want to do. 
what others are telling us would be biblical counsel and wise counsel, what the Lord himself through our daily devotions is telling us, that's where it becomes difficult is to obey what is being said and being taught. Next bullet point. Very few passages in the Bible are symbolic, as I already stated. The symbols that do exist are usually clearly defined in the immediate context. And those that are not defined elsewhere in the Scriptures by comparing Scripture with Scripture. We're starting to get to the point now where many of these factors are done and implemented by utilizing other factors we've already studied, which is why those two especially, context and comparing Scripture with Scripture, are some of the most viable and needed rules of your daily reading. Hey, look at that! In record timing, we're on page two. Yay, me! No. Top of the next page. Figurative examples that are found in Scriptures. You need to keep in mind that, and this is the beautiful thing I love about this, you'll see this through some of these that we look at. The point of going through some of these passages is to see that God is just like you and me. You know, we talk about how Christianity, it's not a religion, it's a what? Relationship. Relationship. But if we're being honest, and if I'm being honest, there are a lot of times where I'll treat my Bible reading like it's a religion. I will go through it in a religious, ritualistic fashion. With my own time that I read it, with the way in which I read it, and even just the passages that I read. Oh, yes, I remember that being preached on recently. Or I remember the last time I read that and how this spoke to me. And, and there was nothing really new I got out of it. We can treat our relationship with Christ like a religion. That's the scary thing for you and I that have already received Christ. And who have been walking with Christ for some time now. Where our relationship and our walk with God can very easily be turned into a religious thing. A, re a religious attribute that we do. And when it comes to this idea of God speaking in figurative language and in some of these types of literary devices we're going to look at, you know what he's reminding us? And this is the big takeaway for this. He's a person who speaks and talks just like you and I do to each other. And I hope that you guys see that through some of these verses we look at and through some of the verses you're going to look at when you break off into groups here in a little bit. That He is a person just like us. He talks the way that we would talk to each other. And that helps me to see that, man, there's so often because I can't audibly hear Him, there are times where I'll just read passages in my Bible and it'll just be kind of stale. And I can take for granted the fact that God is a very real person with a personality. And sometimes He's downright funny. And we'll see that. He talks to us in His Word just the same way that we talk to each other because He is a person. And that should remind us that this whole entire thing is centered around a relationship with Him. Please, don't make your Bible reading a ritualistic religious duty that you have to do. Because otherwise we're no different than Catholicism when you think about it. Alright, so the first thing on here. Turn over to Matthew 13. We won't spend too long on this, I think. And I was looking at some of these verses this morning. I'm like, ooh, that'd be good to mention. Ooh, that'd be good to mention. We touched on this before, the idea of parables. But something I wanted to show you here in Matthew 13, you know, I mean, again, so often, and you might even hear this in teachers that we have here in our church, where they talk about parable. It's a, oh, it's an earthly example of a heavenly truth. As I mentioned in this class just a couple weeks ago, yeah... But no, 
kind of like church history, how church history is a twofold definition. It is the working of God throughout history to establish his threefold will for the, the world, our lives, and the universe. That's, yes, church history, but no, it's not. It also simultaneously is Satan seeking to counter, counterfeit, and confound that threefold plan of God. Both of those, that's the answer of church history. A parable, well, I'll get to it here. It's on your study sheet there. Uh, but Christ started speaking in parables. Look at verse 1. The same day, chapter 13, went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. You can, if you wanted to put a note in your Bible, man, you think about the house. Where, were, where did Jesus tell the Israelites to go when he first, not the Israelites, where did Jesus tell the disciples to go when he first sent them out on their missionary trip? Go to the lost sheep of the house of where? Israel. He wanted his disciples to go to the Jew first and then ultimately to the Greek. Sound familiar? Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But here we see he's walking out of the house, the house of Israel, and sat by the seaside, you could say the seaside of the world. Why is that? Because of the events that happened in chapter 12. Look at chapter 12 for context sake. Look at verse, uh, well, he heals a blind man who's actually, he had a devil with him. He was blind and dumb. Look at verse 23. And all the people were amazed and said, is not this the son of David? In other words, people were starting to connect the dots of the prophecies of the Old Testament that the coming Messiah would be the son or in the lineage of David the king. So they're not just saying, oh, hey, this guy is David's, he's in David's downline. No, this guy's the Messiah. He's doing things that only God himself could do. And look at verse 24. But when the... Who are those guys? Pharisees. Pharisees heard it. They said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but you know who the Pharisees were in their day? They were the Bible experts. They were the guys who knew who taught, and who implemented the rules of Bible study. That's who the Pharisees were. They were the Bible experts. They're us if we're not careful. If we treat time with Christ as a religion and not as a relationship on this side of the cross, on this side of salvation. That's who they were. And they saw the works of the Spirit of God, and they called it satanic. And as a result of that, if you were to keep reading, you'll see that Christ said, hey, you guys just committed the unpardonable sin. And context-wise, I don't want to get too far into this. I don't know if you guys have ever read about the unpardonable sin or it comes up or, you know, the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. Understand that you guys can't commit that practically speaking because you're not a first century Jew and you're not of a Pharisee who rejected Christ and said that his works were satanic. You can't commit that, practically speaking. That's the context of this. There are so many times where people read this, and I even came across that, where you talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost, and you talk about the unpardonable sin, that there's a sin that I can commit that Jesus won't forgive me for. It's this here. 
He's talking about to first century Christians who rejected John the Baptist, making straight the way of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah. They rejected Christ, and then later they rejected Stephen. All of these chances of mercy, and they kept hardening their own hearts by refusing it. I guess an unpardonable sin and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can be committed in this day and age simply by somebody dying without Christ. If they continue to reject the Holy Spirit's working in their life and they don't receive the Holy Spirit, then yeah, when they die and take their last breath, that's the unpardonable sin is that they never received Christ as Savior. That's what awaits your lost family members and friends who don't know Christ. So it is possible, but not for us as Christians. But he says that about them. And as a result of that, he's leaving the house of Israel, begins speaking in parables, talks about the parable of the sowers back in chapter 13. And his disciples say, hey, dude, what's going on? Not technically in so many words, but they do ask him, why are you speaking in parables? And he says in verse 11, chapter 13, he answered and said to them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not given after they already rejected Christ. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Verse 13. <gasps> Matthew 13. 13. Oh, call back to last week. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not. Neither do they understand. So, Bible believer, fundamental Baptist, who has and implements, hopefully, the rules of Bible study, take heed to the words that you read, that you don't reject the words that are being taught to you and preached to you, and the counsel that's given to you from godly counselors. Otherwise, you might be someone who sees, I saw the light, I'm saved but I don't see any more in here on my daily walk. I hear. I heard the call of salvation. See, I hear, but now I don't hear Jesus speaking to me in the Word of God anymore. Hmm. That's what happened to the Pharisees. And we're not immune to it because we're the Bible experts, technically speaking. That's what a fundamentalist is, someone who goes based upon the book. And that's why Christ started speaking in parables. So, on your outline, a parable is using a story in a figurative sense to communicate deeper doctrinal truths to those who are willing to hear and do what it says. And, remember, it's a twofold definition. A parable serves to hide truth. <coughs> I thought you said that Jesus is in the business of hiding truth, he's in the business of revealing it. Well, yes to those who have ears to hear, which is what he says at the end of verse, or what he says in verse 9. And to hide truth from those whose mind is already made up and don't really care what the Bible has to say. That's the point of a parable. Now I say all this because you have to be careful when you're looking at a parable. He's not speaking literally here. It's a metaphorical figure of speech. But I do want to show you something real quick. Turn over to Luke 16. You see how on your outline there's, it says Matthew 13, but then it says verses Luke 16? There's a reason for this. Because a lot of people will get this wrong. Luke 16, <coughs> look at verse 19. 
So we come off of chapter 15 where Jesus gives a, a, a parable, actually three parables. One parable is about the lost sheep. Yeah, if I have 100 sheep, 99 are there, but one goes astray. I'm going to seek after the one. He gives another parable about the lost coin. And he gives a third parable about the lost son, the prodigal. That's in chapter 15. And in chapter 16, boom, you get a fourth one where he's talking about the unjust steward. And then you come to verse 19. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. And Lazarus, you know, he died. And verse 22 says that they, the angels carried him to where? Abraham's bosom. And in verse 23, the rich man in where? Hell, he lifted up his eyes. He saw Abraham and Lazarus. And then he starts talking to Father who? In verse 24. And in verse 25, Abraham speaks. And then you jump down to verse uh, 29. Abraham speaks again. And he says, no, please send someone back from the dead to my family because they're going to repent. And look what Abraham says in verse 31. If they hear not who? Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. In other words, they have the scriptures. If the scripture isn't good enough, they're not going to believe someone rising again from the grave. Question. Parable or no? Why? Rick? It says a certain rich man. Yeah, and what else? I love that. I never saw that before. A certain beggar. Certain beggar. Talking about two defined people. Yeah, who he actually ends up giving names for. Well, not the rich man, but the beggar he does. <coughs> he has Lazarus. He has Abraham's bosom. He has Abraham himself speaking. He talks about Moses and references him. All real people. Very specific people that he mentions. Very specific incidences. Not a figurative story. This is important for when one day you guys are reading your Bible in a Starbucks right before your African Civ class, and a sweet old grandpa named Harry and a sweet old grandma named Nancy come over, and they just so happen to be Jehovah's Witnesses, and they take your Bible from you, and they start flipping you through all of these other passages that they want to get you to see so that you can be converted to be a Jehovah's Witness like them. And then they take you to this passage, and they tell you about how, you see, when you die... No one goes to heaven or hell, but no, see, when you die, this is a parable here. You can't use this. Uh, Jesus, just in the context, was looking at all of these parables. Chapter 15 is a parable. The first half of chapter 16 is a parable. And this is a parable. And no, see, look at all these other passages that we believe talking about when you die, your soul just goes to sleep. And there is no eternal punishment afterwards. And here I am at Starbucks, running late for my African Civ class at Kent Stark, and I'm looking at Luke 16 in this light. I never saw this before. And then all of a sudden, the Spirit of God just says within me, wait a second, these are real people. Jesus never mentions real people or real places in a parable. He's always very broad and generic and not a certain rich man. I never saw that before until... Grandpa Harry and Grandma Nancy, I don't even know if that's where their names or not, sat down and started showing me this. Boy, Grandma Nancy didn't like that when I said that. Well, no, this isn't a parable. 
because he's mentioning real names. She was a little perturbed. Grandpa Harry just let out a very <laughs> kind of a laugh. Is it okay to hit an old man? Just kidding. Felt like that. <laughs> you guys should read your Bible in public more. You get in some interesting conversations. So, next one, symbolism. Turn over to Revelation 1. So know the difference between what is a parable and what is not. There's not too many of those passages like Luke 16 where you're like, wait, is it or isn't it? Revelation 1, verse 12. This is John, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. That's weird. And in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. Oh, sorry. As white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet were like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And, <laughs> I almost just emphasized and. That's not as. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. So, boom, right there, there's another rule of Bible study. Paying attention to every word. He's using comparative speech here to liken something symbolically unto something else. Verse 16, and he had in his right hand seven stars, also weird, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. We know that to be the word of God in Hebrews 4.12. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Oh, if only we could do that spiritually every single day of our lives when we meet with him, that we'd fall down dead because we had a personal encounter with Christ through the word of God. That's the kind of power he brings to John when he saw the risen, glorified Christ in heaven. He dropped down at his feet as dead. That's a picture of what your daily life should be when you come to meet with him. Where you are in such awe of his presence, you are in such awe of the fact that he has granted you access to hear from him and to do what he asks you to do. He has allowed you to serve him because you responded to the call and it should cause us to drop down as dead so that he can live his life through us. And he laid his right hand upon me saying unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. So there's nothing too hard for him. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. And he commissions him to do what he's supposed to do with the book of Revelation. But look at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars, those weird things we saw, huh? which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are, he doesn't say like, he doesn't say as, the seven Stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Those churches represent church history. And each of those church periods, those church uh, periods, I almost said ages, that's not technically correct, have an angelic representation there. So on your outline, symbolism. This is the using of symbols or the use of symbols or representations to learn truths and concepts by comparison. One of the things you gather from this 
is that, huh, so stars are like angels. Stars are compared to angels. And it's funny because I remember in Genesis how God tells Abraham in chapter 15 to look up and to count, actually, I think that's chapter 12. Look up and see if you can number the stars in the heaven and see if you can count them. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Stars. I wonder if I trace the word stars throughout the Bible, or star even, if I'll come up with some other unique and interesting truths about angels. Good and bad ones. You will. In Ezekiel 37, that's the dry bones. I said the dry bones come alive, come alive. I sounded just like Lauren Daigle there. So you guys can check out Ezekiel 37. Look at, wow, guys, come on. I, I didn't even warm up my voice, you know, and I know it was really good. It just woke you guys up from your turkey slumber that you've been in. So, so check that passage out later. What's interesting is, yes, we do use that devotionally speaking to talk about leading somebody who's dead to become alive again, be born again. But doctrinally speaking, that packs a powerful punch as far as the future of Israel is concerned and how graves might once again be coming up and the dead might be rising and walking around. <laughs> Next, figures of speech. Uh, I need someone to turn to Genesis 4.10. Sammy, I need someone to turn to Leviticus 18.25. Jack, I was going to call on you because you made eye contact with me, but thanks for raising your hand also. I need someone to turn to 1 Kings 18.27. Kendall, the rest of us go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Sam, I wasn't going to call on you. You don't need to leave altogether. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this next one is figures of speech. And that simply is figuratively explaining something. Example, a sunrise or a sunset. The sun literally does not rise. The sun literally does not set. It's a figure of speech. It just looks like it does. Genesis 4.10, here's another one. And he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. Do you think Abel, who is dead, that his blood was literally crying from the ground? No. But you know what it helps does illustrate that nothing misses God. We can't hear blood cry, and blood literally doesn't cry. It just goes to show it's a figure of speech to say, God knew what happened. Nothing can be hid from him. Nothing we try to hide from him can be hid from him. He knows all. Even things that we might speak and share with others, but deep down in our hearts, our heart doesn't match what our words are saying. He knows. This is why he warned Israel again, man, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Get a heart check if you need one. Leviticus 18.25. And the land is defiled, therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it, and the land itself vomited out her inhabitants. Did the land, like that island in Moana, thanks for bringing that up. It's in my head now. Came out in the lesson. Like that island in Moana... And it became a person and it actually vomited up the Israelites. Did that literally happen? No. No, right? I didn't hear anybody. Okay, all right, just check it. I don't know. Maybe you guys are watching too much Disney movies. But no. 
But you know what? That kind of an image, that kind of a visual, it does kind of help me to see, hmm, when they defiled the land, when Israel didn't do what they were called to do, there was a consequence for it. And they got kicked out or vomited out of the inheritance that God had given them. And I'm reminded that I as a Christian have an inheritance and that inheritance is based upon my works now that I am a Christian. And that if I don't do what I'm called to do, one day I'm going to stand before my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and give Him an account at the judgment seat. And, hmm, where did I read about somebody else vomiting? Oh, it was to the Laodicean church. The church that describes the day and age in which you and I live in. Where because we're not hot, but we're also not cold... We're lukewarm. We got one foot in the world system and we got one foot on top of our closed Bible and we think that's okay. We think that there's no consequence for it. Well, just as the Israelites got vomited out of their land, Christ might vomit at the sight of our Christianity. He might vomit out inheritances that we did have that we then squandered. All right, next, sarcastic statements. Oh, I love this. 1 Kings 18, 27. That's you, right, Kendall? Yes. You guys remember this story? This is Elijah before the prophets of Baal. And they're having a contest to see, all right, who's the real God here? And when Baal's people try to conjure and let Baal answer them and the false God to answer them, he's not answering them. And so here's what our man Elijah does. I love it. Uh, and it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is talking or he is pursuing or he is in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened. Now granted, that was Elijah. But it's also in the Word of God. It's inspired. He was a preacher. Preachers are just mouthpieces for the Spirit of God to speak. And God didn't chastise him for that. I love it. Sarcasm, yeah, not good when it's in your home against your parents. But it has its... Why did you look at me like that? Because I know. You don't need to. That was a rhetorical question. You don't need to answer that one. <laughs> but in certain circumstances, like this one here, I love it. Because what is sarcasm? It's right there on your study sheet. It's cutting or taunting in order to aggravate or hurt someone's feelings. A mocking remark using statements opposite or irrelevant to the underlying meaning. Yeah. God has a sense of humor. And God used this in a very cutting way. Man, no pun intended when you look at what prophets of Baal did after that when their God and their religion failed them. But it was used to show those onlookers who were still on the fence. If God be God, do I follow Him? Or if Baal be God, do I follow Him? I'm not sure. Oh, oh man, he's... Boy, that's deep. He's not letting, he's letting loose. He's not pulling any punches with that sarcastic remark. And boy, it really does help illustrate just how little their God is actually answering them. That helps. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, is it really? Holy smokes. All right. Uh, look at verse 16. Paul saying, I say again, let no man think me as a fool. If otherwise, yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast myself a little. That which I speak, I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also. Should we be glorying and boasting of ourselves and what the power of our flesh can do? No. 
He's being sarcastic here. And he's saying it to prove a point. The point is verse 19. Ye suffer or allow fools gladly, seeing ye yourselves are wise. The context of this is talking about false teachers and false apostles saying they're from Christ and this church letting them have their way. So that's the sarcastic statement there. All right, hyperbole. Uh, look over real quick, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll knock these out that way to give you guys some time. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Oh, the great love chapter of the Bible. Paul speaks, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass. Those of you guys in band, can you the word sounding there is talking about reverb. Can you imagine if a brass instrument is just playing and the reverb is just bouncing everywhere? How like awful that would sound? That would be atrocious. And then he goes on further. I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. How great is a band if it was just the cymbals? Can a cymbal hold a beat? Maybe I asked that wrong. It, may, well, it does hold a beat, but imagine if it was the instrument by itself. He's saying, he's like, man, if I could speak all of these languages, and if I could speak you know, different languages there, but I don't do it out of love, I'm just that. But here's the note of it. People talk in churches today about the tongue of the angels, an angelic tongue, and they think it's this unknown tongue, and it's really just this gibberish. Well, the fact of the matter is, when you look at the tongues or the languages that angels speak in the Bible, it's Hebrew. Because every single angel, when he's speaking in the Bible, is speaking to a Jew, and the Jew could understand him in his own language very, very clearly. The tongue of an angel is Hebrew, because tongues mean languages. And you don't find tongues of angels anywhere else in the Bible. This is the only mention of it. More on that in a couple weeks, talking about basing a doctrine on one verse alone. So he's speaking in hyperbole. It's an exaggerated statement used for effect, not meant to be taken literally. Uh, satirical statements. Man, I had something I wanted to show you guys with this, but satire is basically, well, I have it on there. It's a literary work in which irony, derision, or wit is used to expose fully or to expose folly or wickedness. Any of you guys familiar with a publication website called the Babylon Bee? It's kind of, it's really, really funny. It's basically, they take articles and headlines and they put a little twist on it. It's basically fake news, but they're intending to be fake news in order to expose a deeper folly that's going on in society today. And, oh, I do want to look at this. This will be the last one. Matthew 23. Then you guys are going to break up in your groups. Matthew 23. I love it because Christ himself even did this. Satire is supposed to be kind of funny. And that's what the Babylon Bee is. If you check out any of their articles, especially as it pertains to political stuff, it's very, very funny. But it is humor that's used to expose a deeper thing. Like there was one article headline that I saw in the Babylon Bee where they talked about... Uh, um, in honor of Black Friday, uh, stores are going to be charging people for the price of what the product was before the Biden administration because inflation has just gotten out of control. So it's things like that. Obviously, Black Friday people in their stores aren't doing that, but that was the joke of it. Look at Matthew 23. Christ is speaking here 
to the, the Pharisees, ripping them a new one. And he says here in verse 24, the entire chapter or the entire passage here is all satire. But I love verse 24. He says, Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Now picture your Lord and Savior talking to a whole bunch of these religious know-it-alls and saying and painting this picture. Can you imagine somebody actually trying to swallow a camel whole? Can you imagine how ridiculous it is for somebody to be choking on swallowing a gnat? And that's what he's saying here to them. It's used to cut at them. And it is kind of humorous when you picture Christ. I can just hear the crowd laughing as he's saying this to them. We're like, huh, that is actually kind of funny. That's what the Pharisees do. And here's the point of it. Scripture is easy. Proverbs 14.6 says that knowledge is easy to him that understandeth. The problem we just saw in Matthew 13 is that most people don't want to understand. They have their minds already made up to the truths that they want to believe and adhere to. And so when you go and you present to them a simple passage like, For God so loved the world that whosoever, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For whosoever, Romans 10, 13, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And how simple a passage that is to show that salvation is available for all people who are willing to respond to the call and not just a select group of elites who were chosen to be saved before the foundation of the world, independent of their own free will choice or not. You show a verse like that to someone, say a Calvinist, and watch how they choke on the simplicity of that simple truth, that gnat. Instead, they like going to the big, complicated passages, and they like to consume everything about those obscure passages and twist it out of context to make it fit with their doctrine. That's why, you know what your best bet is if you're coming against Grandpa Harry and Grandma Nancy, the Jehovah's Witnesses? Major in the simple verses of salvation and the simple verses of the doctrine of the Bible and watch them strain at it. And if you major in those things, you have down those simple truths of the verses that are talking about what simple salvation is. Romans Road, for example. Later on, you can start tackling some of those bigger, meatier, camel-like passages to rip apart their beliefs. But that's what satire is. And last, sanctimony. You can look at those passages later, but Revelation 3.17 is basically talking about, uh, For thou sayest, I am rich and increased with good and have need of nothing. Sanctimony is making a pretense of piety. It's being deceitful in your spirituality, thinking that you're something bigger and more than what you actually are. Job himself even did that. You can check that passage out later. All right. You guys can split up in your groups. We have some applications here, some passages to look up. It shouldn't take too long. We should be able to finish in the next 10 minutes here. I'm not going to have much commentary with any of them. So split up in groups two or three in your row if you want. We're kind of a little bit smaller today, so have at it. And we'll come back here in about... First one, Numbers 14.9. What'd you guys get? It's up here on the screen if you need it. It's not Hyperbole is how you pronounce that word. And yes, you're correct. Yeah. Does everybody see that? Exactly. It's an exaggerated statement used for effect, not meant to be taken literally. They're not literally going to eat the giants. 
Yeah, exactly, AJ. <laughs> Alright, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Uh, well, just picking verse randomly. Verse 4. I made me great works, I built me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kind of fruits. I made me pools of water, to water there with the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, and had servants born in me house. Oh, he says my house there. And I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I think I just blended Irish and Scottish there. I have no idea what I just read. <laughs> what? <is it>? What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. What is it here? <laughs> you got to do the the R roll if you're going to do Scottish. All right. What is it? The point of Ecclesiastes, this is Solomon when he's not walking with God. He's finding out that what he was pursuing after ends up, ended up not being really what God wanted him to pursue after. Satirical statement. Satirical. Was I right? Yes. Exactly. Not with your pronunciation, though, but I'll allow it. Yeah. All right. Judges chapter 9. I don't have that one on me because it was too long to put up here on the screen. What do you guys have for Judges 9? Well, who did get that one? It's literally the third one. We did that. They call him first. Does anyone have it? Does anyone have Judges 9? What is it? Sarcasm, actually. Stink. Oh, I thought you said symbolism. Um, you know what? Because you didn't say it in an Irish accent, that's why. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> Sarcasm is that. Yes, like on Jeopardy. All right, Genesis 33:10 up here on the screen. What do you guys got? What was that? Not parable. No, I was joking. I said they have to answer oh. a question like Jeopardy. Oh. Mm -hmm. What is? What, what is? is? <laughs> what do you, if you have it on your sheet, what do you have? What is figure of speech? Hyperbole, actually. I told you. <laughs> Isaiah 65.5. I am holier than thou. Thank you. Job 12.7. No doubt, but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. Is wisdom literally going to die with them? Yep, is a figure of speech. Actually, uh, sorry, that one's sarcasm. My bad. It's sarcasm. He's being cutting with them. Huh? Genesis 33.10 is hyperbole. All right, Joshua 24.27. What do you guys got? Symbolism. <laughs> that one is a figure of speech. Because the rock didn't literally hear all the words that he spoke. But, but, the capital R rock did hear all the words that he spoke. That's the figure behind it. And last, we got to keep moving. Judges 7.12. And the Midianites and the Amalekites... What do you guys got? Symbolism and figure of speech. <laughs> Let's see what I get going. I need to just run it all together because I'm running late. No, you can't just say them all. Anybody else got it? <laughs> Hyperbole. 
They're not all hyperbole. There's three hyperboles on there. Why is Joshua 24, 27 not sanctimony? Like, kind of like two more parts out of it that could go for... It, go, it could go for, like, this part, but then, like, some of it could go for the other part. Well, take it up with <laughs> the pastors who uh, came up with our curriculum. Because that's from the adult material, too. Conclusion! Always take a passage literally unless it is impossible to interpret it literally. Observing this key will save you from many false doctrines. Write this down real quick. John chapter 6, verses 51 to 63. Catholics take that to say that it's talking about when you eat bread and wine in their church. It is the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's not what he's doing. He's speaking figuratively there. Speaking in angelic tongues, we already covered that. And as I already talked about, the universalism of there not being a literal hell afterwards. All right, let's pray. Father.